I have a little story, but it has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just like a little thing like about enjoying winter that I've been thinking about since we had Gail Boss here last week. Rachel and I, I convinced Rachel yesterday to join me in going out, and I'd heard about the National Audubon Society. Apparently, every Christmas does a big bird count, and they've been doing it since 1904, and so they send people out all across the country, and you just go to different locations, and you count the birds for hours. So we spent like three hours freezing, walking through the woods, looking for birds, and realizing just how little we actually know, even though we were studying really hard before we went. But it was really fun. And um, we got home and we were both so like chilled to the bone that we just like crawled in bed and took a nap for two hours <laughs> after that. And I just kept thinking about how Gail Boss was saying that, you know, some of this is just biological, right? Like the, the cold sets in and the dark sets in and something in you wants to just like crawl in bed and just get warm and sleep a little bit. I think it's okay. I hope, Brandon, that I share this. After Gail had spoken, you were like, you know, there's just such a relief knowing that like, oh yeah, sometimes it's just because I'm a mammal. Yeah, it's just because I'm a mammal. <laughs> this is why this is happening. So, so anyway, it was just kind of a, a good restful day and we learned a little bit about bird calls. So here we are, Advent Sermon Series, retelling the story of John the Baptist, which is a traditional story to talk about. But to, to carry on with this story this week, what we need to do is actually back up a little bit and we have to kind of show a flashback scene and this flashback scene is to a time long before John was born, hundreds of years. And that flashback is to a man named Isaiah. Or maybe we'll just say that's his name. We're not quite sure. So the thing about the book that we call Isaiah, you know, it's one of the larger books in the Hebrew scriptures that's sometimes called the Old Testament, um, is that Isaiah actually had at least two different authors. And it was only later that the two different um, sections of that book were then compiled into one. I actually think it would make more sense to have 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. So that's actually what I'm going to call them, 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. And 1st Isaiah wrote the first 39 chapters, and then the second author picked up in chapter 40. And there's really a significant space of time between those two. So 1st Isaiah, the guy that wrote the first part, most likely lived in the city of Jerusalem. And first Isaiah was one of those people who like, has that ability to sort of accurately um, ass, assess like, the cultural dynamics and political situation of his day. Right? I think, as we well know, we've all been through some pretty rough times here the last few years, that when you're in the middle of like, a politically tumultuous time, what can seem obvious after the fact and looking back is not always obvious for a large number of people as they're living through it. Even to us, right? We're, we're seeing some things clearly and some things we're not seeing clearly even when we think that we are. But there's usually a handful of people who do correctly evaluate what's happening. Right? People who, like, while they're in the midst of the tumult, who can look around and they can look at the different dynamics that are all in play and they're able to kind of see through it and name the most likely outcome given all of the different factors. And so in the Christian tradition, we call this reading the signs of the times. You might have heard that phrase at some point if you grew up in church. And the people who do this well, who read the signs of their times well, we sometimes call prophets. Right, so first Isaiah is a prophet. He's one of those people where he was able to look around and he's like, you all know what's going to happen, right? Like, it, it seems so obvious to me what's going to happen. Given our circumstances, this big empire next door, I won't call it Canada, but, but if that's helpful, like this close nearby empire, 
is totally going to come over here and ransack our city. Like, that's what's going to happen. So in the very final scene that first Isaiah writes in chapter 39, he's telling a story about when he was talking to his king, right, whose name was Hezekiah. And so this king had just welcomed a whole bunch of envoys from this, this nearby empire, from the Babylonian empire. And these envoys had come to Jerusalem and they were like, hey, king, oh man, it's good to see you. We heard you'd been sick. So we thought we would come and just wish you well and, and make sure that you know that your friends over here in Babylon have been thinking about you. And Hezekiah is like, oh, man, that, that is just so kind. It is so good of you to come all this way just to tell me that you're, you're glad that I'm feeling better. Let me just lavish you with hospitality while you're here. Let me just give you a grand tour. I'll show you around our storehouses. I'll show you the armory. Let me show you the treasury. I'm going to show you all the riches of the city. I'm going to show you all the great perfumes that we make and the expensive spices. Oh, you should check out the olive oil that we make here. It is absolutely top of the line. I'm going to show you how blessed we are and I'm going to show you where all the silver and gold is. So when the word of this state visit got to first Isaiah, he went to the king and he's like, you did what? <laughs> Please tell me you did not go and show them everything. And the king replied, well, sure. They even saw my palace. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. The last quote from Hezekiah. And in that moment, you can almost see first Isaiah kind of, you know, like blinking a little bit quickly. He's like, okay, let me get this straight. The Babylonians, your very powerful neighbors, they know that you're weak, that you're recovering from a life-threatening illness. They also know just how much wealth we have, where we store it. They know the state of our military. You show them all of our arms. They know where our extra food is stored, and they know where you sleep at night. And now they know how naive of a leader you are. So first Isaiah is like, okay, this is what's going to happen, you fool. They are going to come in, and they're going to steal all of our riches, and they're going to utterly destroy what's left of our military, and this is, this is inevitable. This is the word of the Lord. Right? So the last recorded words of first Isaiah are of the king saying, the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. And he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Right? So he's kind of like, sure, they might try and overthrow me. You might be right. But at least it's not while I'm alive. You're like, maybe down the road. I don't really care if it's not affecting me. And so that's where we leave it. First Isaiah, the curtain goes down, the theater goes dark. It's now intermission in the book of Isaiah. And we can all guess what happens during intermission in the book of Isaiah. Very soon after, Jerusalem is ransacked and robbed. Hezekiah's sons are carried off to Babylon. It's said that some of them were made to serve as eunuchs in the palace of the Babylonian ruler. So that intermission time here in the book of Isaiah, it lasts 160 years. That's how big that, that gap is there. More than 160 years pass between the time that first Isaiah made that prediction to the king and the time that second Isaiah comes onto the stage to tell the other half of the story. And during that long intermission, the Israelites felt like they weren't hearing much of anything from God through their prophets. And if you think about it, like if subtract like 160 years from where we are today, that would take us back to 1862, which is like the middle of the American Civil War. Like that's, that's a pretty long silence, right? That's generations. Generations of people who have grown up in Babylon. And then comes along Second Isaiah. The thing about Second Isaiah, as he comes on stage, is we don't actually know anything about him other than that he seems to be writing from Babylon, and even that we're not entirely sure of. 
We don't know his age, we don't know his lineage, we don't know his education, we don't know what he does for a living like we do with some of the other prophets. What we do know is that he wrote some of the most powerful prose in the Hebrew scriptures. Right? He came onto the scene with words that just spoke right into the hearts of his people who had suffered for such a long time. And so if you picked up the, the readings today, I'm going to start with the beginning here of Isaiah 40. He starts with these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. Any of you a fan of Handel's Messiah? You go see that every week. Got it. Brandon in the back. I know Tim and Rich used to go see it every week. Dave. I, actually, I sang in it one time here in Ann Arbor. It has an annual showing at, at Hill. I think it happened a couple weeks ago. But if you know the Handel's version of the Messiah, his translation of this part of Isaiah is, comfort ye my people, rather than comfort my people. Comfort ye my people. Right, so in the Hebrew, this phrase is a command. It's a little bit like in English, you know how we sometimes have like an understood you before a command. You know, if we say sit down, it means you sit down. And that's what's happening here. It's you comfort my people. And it's plural. It's right. All of you go comfort my people, says the Lord. So one of my favorite theologians, Walter Brueggemann, I think I've got his quote there because it's a little bit thick. I put it on the paper. He says this in his commentary. He says, it's widely accepted by scholars that the plural of address here is spoken to members of the divine council the government of Yahweh in heaven that's peopled by angels and messengers. In order to understand this poetic, lyrical vision, it's necessary to conjure a scene of governmental functionaries in attendance on Yahweh who presides over the government. Right, so it's very rich imagery that's happening here. Where Isaiah is telling us that he's having this vision, this picture of God that's surrounded by all the ministers of heaven, and he's telling them, you know, the policy's been updated. There's been some shifts on the ground. We can update the official policy. The number one priority at this point is comfort. Go ye comfort my people. And then what follows seems to be a discussion among the council for how to carry that out. So we'll look at the rest here of Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So essentially, someone among this council is offering this idea. Hey, let's build a superhighway straight through the desert so that God's presence can come speeding into Jerusalem, and everybody's going to see their glory. Right? This is one of the most famous passages in the Hebrew scriptures, this picture of God speeding in on the highway. In the Christian tradition, we interpret that promise of coming comfort from God that 2 Isaiah is sharing here as hanging in the air for another few hundred years. Right? There's a whole range of interpretation in the Jewish tradition about whether or how this command of comfort has actually been fulfilled, but it's this picture of God's presence coming in on the superhighway through the desert that was resurrected by all four of the gospel writers at the beginning when they're talking about John the Baptist. All four of them draw from Isaiah 40 and they point to this picture and they say, we're picking up that story, just so you know. This is where we're picking up. 
We are united in making the claim that John the Baptist was one of the people chosen to help prepare the way for the presence of God, and the way he was preparing, or what he was preparing for, was for his cousin Jesus to come in to uh, riding into town. So John the Baptist was helping carry out this, this divine order of comfort for God to ride in on. So here's the picture I had. Sometimes it helps me to just like keep a, like a weird, rich picture that I'll call midrash, right? Just sort of a commentary. Um, you guys, anybody remember an El Camino? Some of you are dating myself a little bit. El Caminos are like, it's like a low, you know, like a low pickup truck with a flatbed, only it's a car. And I have always thought, oh man, I feel like pickup trucks take too much gas, but if they made like one of those cars with like an open flatbed, I would totally buy that thing. It'd be so great for our gardening. It'd be so great for mulching. I even looked it up. I was like, were they going to bring the El Camino back? They used to have like flames on the side of some of them. And Rachel has assured me that even if they bring it back, the answer is no. <laughs> I am vetoing the El Camino. Like, but man, you could just throw like dirt into it. It'd be awesome. What I picture here is like one of those El Caminos with like the flames on it, and it's out there in the desert, and this El Camino is just like filled with comfort, and it's back flat, flatbed, and it is just ready to roll. And John the Baptist, he's like the guy who's out there like putting the finishing touches on the highway, he's stocking the flatbed, you know, he's like, comfort, comfort, just filling that in, and then he gets in the front seat, and he's just driving that thing really fast straight into the heart of Jerusalem, right? He's coming to town. Did that work? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> so how did he comfort his people? Well, the very first words that we hear of his in the Gospel of Luke, I think, are a little bit telling. They go like this, if you look on your sheet. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is ready at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Whew, that does not sound like comfort. <laughs> sounds like spitting prophetic fire. He sounds like a preacher I would not want to listen to. And it got the people stirred up. Right? So they go on. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, well, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, well, don't exhort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, and they were wondering if their hearts, if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who's more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right, so it turns out the spitting prophetic fire is the comfort that John is bringing to his people, right? which begs the question, who does this comfort? Well, it comforts people who are experiencing injustice. It's good news for people who are struggling to put food on the table, clothing on their kids. It's good news for people who are being cheated by tax collectors or exploited by the government or corporations or their employers. It's good news for people being falsely accused by Roman soldiers, for people for whom those soldiers are exploiting money. And John calls those who are doing the harm to quit. Right? Stop doing it. 
And that brings comfort to those who are being exploited. Right? So if God's presence is riding into town in El Camino, then acts of justice are what's in the flatbed. Right? It's like John drives in, he pulls up into the parking lot in Jerusalem, he hits the parking brake and squeals around. I'm just going to carry this all the way through, right? <laughs> and he gets out and he picks up his cousin Jesus and they both get in the flatbed and they just start handing out justice. Right? It's like that Oprah meme. It's like, you get a justice, and you get a justice, and you also get a justice. Everybody should get justice. Right. God comforts their people by saying that they care about the injustices that are happening, and they're on their way to town to do something about it, even if it takes a really long time. But in this case, saying Jesus is coming to show a way of living by example, that can help right these kinds of social wrongs, right? The wrongs of inequality, the wrongs of the misuses of power, the wrongs of being cheated by the greedy. We've got somebody whose example you can follow that will help end this on a systemic level if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. So in this fourth Sunday of Advent, we lit the candle of love. And as we do this, we remember that Isaiah said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Right, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus, but we also help prepare the world for the divine presence by acting justly. And we do it with love and with joy and with this expectant hope that Zechariah was singing about when he sang about his son John. He says, The rising sun will come to us from heaven, and it will shine on those who are living in the darkness in the shadow of death. So come, Lord Jesus. So for our meditation today, we usually take a minute of either silence or guided meditation. We remember that Advent is the season of waiting. It's the season of waiting for God to show up, of God being with us on earth. And this morning we remember that sometimes it can take hundreds of years for people who have been experiencing injustice. They've been waiting hundreds of years for God's comfort and presence to come. And I know that there's parts of our lives that we can relate to with that, where we can just say, man, it just, I feel like I've just been waiting for your presence to show up in this space for a long, long time. And we know that your timing is not always our timing, but Lord, we just want to invite you to come into these places. And so we'll just take a minute or two, I'll let you know when the time is up, to maybe just present those places where we're waiting on God's presence to show up and make an appearance in our life. Come Holy Spirit.
So God, we acknowledge together that there are people all around this world who have been crying out to you and crying out for justice, sometimes for hundreds, even thousands of years, waiting for your justice to show up. And so we ask that you will help us know how it is that we can be part of being part of the answer to that, of preparing the way for your presence, that we can participate in enacting that justice and listening to those voices the way your son Jesus taught us to. We also know that there's places in our lives where we've been waiting personally for an answer, for some comfort, for your presence. And so we just ask and wait expectantly this week as we prepare for Christmas and the coming light. I ask that your presence would be felt, Emmanuel, God with us, in those moments when things feel hard or in these places where there's grief or suffering that still need tending. The Holy Spirit be with us in this week. Amen.